0: Message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. We're shocked by the news of uh, Paris. Uh, what happened in Paris this uh, in the last few days? Um, I was shocked just as uh, many as you were, and. Um, how do you respond to things like that? How do you how do we look and see terrible events like this go on, and how do we um, what is the Christian response to these things? And I want to try to get in and look in that today, and I think we'll see that from our passage today. But before we start, I want to ask you a question in light of this all. And this uh, this question is not to provoke provoke anger or animosity towards uh, towards Muslims or anything of that nature. But my question is, what's the difference between a radical Islamist who goes and does a terrible thing like this, gives up his life, and a Christian who lays down his life for his faith. What is the difference between the two? Is the motives the same? Is, is, is everything the same in the two? But what, what do we see as the difference between those two? And I want to examine that in our passage today. But before we do, I want to read some quotes. Um, just from some famous uh, different uh, Islamic leaders about Islam. Hassan Nasahala, the, the leader of Hezbollah, says this. This is what he's talking about, uh, martyrdom. We are going to win because we love life and we love death. He also said this Each of us lives his days and nights hoping more than anything to be killed for the sake of Allah. Shortly after 9 11, Osama bin Laden says this. He said to a reporter. We love death. The U.S. loves life. That's the big difference between us. Um, one of the main Al-Qaeda Al- Al-Qa- operatives, Mulani, and I'm not even going to try to say his last name, um, Inyal law uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, he says, The Americans love Pepsi. We love death. I'm impressed that you knew that, by the way. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Roy is as well. But he, he says, the, Me- the Americans love Pepsi. We love death. I'm going to give another one. The leader of the Global Islamic Youth Center in Sydney, Australia, he also has a difficult name that Jessica probably knows, um, <laughs> says, Hey, I got to have one every We want to have children and offer them as soldiers def- defending Islam. Teach them this, there is nothing more beloved to me than wanting to die as a martyr. Um, Ali Atolia, Ali, another difficult name, says this in a speech. It is the zenith of honor for a young man, a young boy or girl, to be prepared to sacrifice his life in order to serve the interest of his nations and religion. So what's the big difference between the two? Is this the same position as a Christian who goes maybe and shares the gospel in a country and then gives up his life for the faith? Are these two similar mindsets? First of all, I think there's one big difference is that Christians don't love death. It's not that we love death or enjoy death or really encourage death in any way. The Christian message is that death is a result of sin. It's not something to be, that we should pursue and, and engage in. Paul says he longs to be with Christ, yet it is for your good that he is here. It's not something that we encourage, that we know one day there will be a point where death is no more. Furthermore, Christians are known and throughout, the church, throughout church history we can hear testimonies of men and women who gave up their life for the faith. It's not they're going to actually take others' lives. No, they give up their life at the expense for others'. That's the Christian message. Jesus says Great, no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the Christian message. That they'll go and share the gospel with people even to the point that it may cost them their life even if they just get to share the good news with them. And we're going to see in our story today the story of Stephen. We just happened to come up on the story of Stephen when this took place. A man... Who was willing to go so far that he gave up his life for his faith, that he may share the gospel with these people. That out of love for these people, he shares the gospel. And he has a different response than I love death, or that we should love death. And we're going to get to see that at the end of our passage today. I'm going to kind of divide this into two parts. Usually I'd read the scripture first. Um, this week I'm going to read a section, and then I'm going to break down a small section of it. But if you've ever wanted a summary of the Old Testament, if you want to see what the whole Old Testament teaches, this passage right there, right here, literally breaks down the entire Old Testament. Stephen summarizes the entire Old Testament in one chapter. You can't get a better response than this. He starts off with this. And the high priest said, Are these the things? Are these things so? And Stephen said, Here's the sermon. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he went to Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from um, there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but he promised to give him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child and god spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years but i will judge the nation i will judge the nation that they serve said god and after they shall come out and worship me in this place there you have the exodus and they gave, and he gave them a covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs, and the twelve patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, so sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and all of the household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, and seventy-five persons in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and, our father, and or he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid at the tomb of Abraham. Abraham had brought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time the promise drew near, God granted Abraham The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he uh, he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and then he was exposed to Pharaoh's daughter and adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was forty years old it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended and oppressed a man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but he did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man was uh, wronging was his neighbor and thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, the angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame and a fire of a bush. And Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled, did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and heard the groanings I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This God who sent you both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea in the wilderness for four years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me and your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation at the wilderness when the angel spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go up before us. As for Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. We made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away And gave them over the worship of the host of heaven as written in the prophets. Do you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of um, Moloch and the star of Repham and the images you made in worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness. And as he sent, spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers turned or bought it with Joshua when they disposed of the nations of God and drove them out of our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find dwelling place in the, for the house of God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands of men, as the prophet says Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It's a very long passage. Very sorry to read that all, but I think it's a good summary. If you ever want a summary of the Old Testament, he literally takes you step by step through the Old Testament. We normally would not read or even preach through a passage that long, but I want to show you a summary. He's trying to, he's building an argument. If you guys remember last week, we talked about. Um, Stephen was just appointed as a deacon. A need arose. They had uh, widows who were not being taken care of. So they said, we cannot devote ourselves to these things and also devote ourselves to prayer and to preaching of God's Word. So then they appointed deacons. Well, his first day on the job, he has to stand an account to these people. These people say the religious elite of the day, they start persecuting him. And they want him to stand an account and say, why do you worship this Jesus? He is a false prophet. Then, he preaches this sermon, this long passage, and he goes and breaks it down and he shows how all of the Old Testament build up to this point. And now we're actually going to dive into, not this first section, the first section is a summary, but we're going to, we're going to dive into what he says as a result of this long passage that we read. We'll see what he says in light of that. He says, you stiff-necked people. Why does he start off this way? He's trying to show that throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, his summary of the Old Testament, over and over and over again, these people rejected God's prophet. God sends them someone who is supposed to lead them, who is there to instruct them in God's Word. And over and over again, they reject Him. And they say, we're better off in slavery no, this is not the promised one. Over and over again. They, they persecute God's prophets. Then he uses this phrase, you stiff-necked people. Why does he use this phrase? This is not a popular sermon, I imagine. You know, if Jason came up here and says, you guys aren't listening to me, you're all stiff-necked. Or if I came up here and I said that none of you listen to me, you stiff-necked people, it would offend you. He's not winning over fans by talking this way. But why does he use this phrase? Is it just an offensive phrase to to really belittle the people there? No. He's tying himself back to the Exodus. The same phrase was used to describe the people over and over again. Yahweh calls these people stiff-necked because they're rejecting His prophet. Over and over again. He delivers a word to them and they don't listen. So He calls them stiff-necked. Listen to this. In Exodus 33... The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send the angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Pezrites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go into the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up before you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people." Yahweh calls that to Israel. Next, he says in Leviticus, you are un, or ne, or next, next he calls these people, back to our passage, sorry. So, he's tying them back to the people of Exodus who didn't listen to the Lord, and then he calls them this. You're uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. It's not a phrase we call people very often nowadays. It's not a phrase we use very often, and it would be a very odd phrase if we did. But in this culture, what was circumcision? It was the sign that they were God's people. That God gave a promise to Abraham. He says to circumcise your children on the eighth day. And it's a sign that I will be your God and you will be my people. So over and over again when they disobey, what's he say? He says that you're not circumcised in your heart. You have a physical circumcision, but you don't have one, a spiritual one. Your heart is not cut. cut. It has not been cut for the Lord. It doesn't have the sign that you are His people and that He is your God. Your lives are not showing that you are God. That He is your God. That's why He calls them uncircumcised of the heart. Your heart doesn't have the the sign that it belongs to the Lord. And once again, this is the a, a phrase that's used over and over and over again in reference to Israel. Leviticus twenty six forty one says this, or it says um, in Leviticus twenty six forty one, he calls them uncircumcised of the heart. And then Jeremiah four, he says this: "If you, O Israel," he's saying, "If they're going to repent from their ways, if you, O Israel," declares the Lord. To me you shall return, if you remove your detestable things from my present, and do not waver. If you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations shall be blessed themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my anger or my wrath go before you like fire and burn none of it or none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So then when Israel or Jerusalem ref- refuses to repent once they hear this in Jeremiah 6:10 he says this. To whom shall I speak and give warning that you may hear? Behold, the ears are, your ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Over and over again, sorry to keep referring back to these passages, but I want to show you this is not something I'm coming up with. Over and over again, these same phrases... They're scattered throughout the Old Testament because the people of Israel refused to listen to the prophets. God sends them a message, calls them to repent, and what do they do? They kill God's prophet. They persecute God's prophet. They don't listen to His prophet over and over again. This is the message. God is trying to redeem them. They do not listen to the Word. So now, when we come to our passage, back to our passage in Acts, the very next phrase starts to make sense. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. This phrase has been hotly debated, I think oftentimes confused, Once we understand the context here, it's very clear what he's talking about. God is sending people, these people, trying to redeem them, if they would repent. But they reject the prophet. And by rejecting the prophet, they reject God. By rejecting God, they reject His Spirit. They hear the message, and then they leave, and their life is never changed because of it. Thus they've rejected God Himself. That's why He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This doesn't contradict verses like, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they will listen. It doesn't contradict that at all. What He's doing is He's tying these people that Jesus has come, the promised Messiah has come. And just like the prophets of old, they rejected the prophets. Now the promised Redeemer has come, and they rejected Him too. Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, and they have rejected Him. Just like they did of old. And they show that they're uncircumcised of the heart. They show that they're a stiff-necked people and that they're far from God. Because they rejected His Messiah. Now down to verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Over and over again in the Old Testament, this phrase the righteous one is used in reference to the the promised Messiah. And now Stephen is showing how that promised Messiah, that righteous one is Jesus. The coming of the righteous one. Whom you now have betrayed and murdered You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They over and over again had God's Word. They had an angel deliver them God's Word. And they rejected it. They did not keep it in their hearts. How often are we guilty of these things? We hear God's Word... We see how it points to Christ, and yet we don't treasure Christ. Christ commands us to do something, yet we hear it, it goes in one ear and out the other, and we leave, and it never truly seeps in. It never impacts our soul. We never preach it to ourselves. We never change by God's Word. We are like those before who are reading it as a textbook, and rather than reading it for spiritual growth and desire of our Lord. We are all guilty of this. And now we're going to see the proper way to respond. How does Stephen respond to this? How do we respond? What's the difference between a radical Islamist who gives up his life and one who lays down his life for others? We'll get to see that with this man named Stephen. Let me give you a quote from a man named William Carey. Um, William Carey was a, a great missionary. and There was a time where people were not engaging the loss. and William Carey decided he wanted to go and reach these people and learn the language and share the gospel, even though it may cost him his life. And this man gave up his life on the mission field for these people. Um, but this is a quote from William Carey. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So my question to you is, how do you get boldness like Stephen, who, is, who is just went to this people and went up to him and told them, everything that you think you know about the Bible, everything that you put your hope in, you've completely misunderstood. How do you get boldness to do that? How do we get boldness to know that even though they may take my life, Jesus is still enough. How do I get that type of, of strength and power and confidence? How do I get strength and confidence like William Carey, who will go to a people who's never heard and be willing to give up my life for the sake of the gospel? How do I get boldness like that? How do we live risky lives like that? I think this is where we start to see it down in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at Him. It's not really people grinding their teeth. It's just a um, a euphemism in this time period to show anger. Like in Hebrew, a small Hebrew lesson for you here. Uh, In Hebrew when it says God is angry with you, it's not literally saying God is angry. It says His nose is hot towards you. It's just a different culture. We don't really understand these things. But same way here, they're grinding their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So where did Stephen get this boldness? Where did he get this this power, this, this lack of fear to go stand before these people and say they misunderstood the whole Bible? It's because he had an image of God in his glory. He viewed God. He saw God in his splendor. And it motivated him. It gave him power. When you get a glimpse of Jesus in his greatness, that's what gives you power. That's where you can boldly proclaim the gospel to your friends and have confidence that even if they take my life, Jesus is enough. I think about this, that... Most of the sermons I've heard in my life that I I really remember, that I look back to, and I can almost give you point-by-point lessons for, they're not the five points of application for marriage, it's five steps to a better marriage. It's not those. It's not the how to lead your family well, five steps to better uh, leadership, or even friendship sermons. I wrote a book on friendship. It's not five steps to better friendships. It's not the step-by-step guides. It's not the, the hope and despair messages. It's not even messages that have a a long list of commands. You know, I've got to do these things. It's not sermons like that I leave and I really remember. They've really impacted my life. Sometimes these sermons that have impacted my life that I remember back to are sermons that have no commands whatsoever. They don't tell me to do anything. So what makes these sermons so great? They show me how great Jesus is. How all of Scripture has pointed to Him. And I see Christ in a new way that I never saw before. They'll be going into the Old Testament and they'll show from Christ. And they'll show Christ in the Old Testament. how All of this is building up to make much of Jesus. So it is those sermons that I leave from. When I see Jesus in His glory from a passage, those are the ones that change my life. It is those that I remember. Oftentimes, I can tell you the names of the sermons like that. I can tell you where I was. I can tell you who was preaching them. You may remember Jason. Uh, you may remember Brian's sermon on um, Rachel and Leah. I remember that in great detail. Or John Piper's sermon, "Doing Missions When Dying is Gain." I remember that sermon in great detail. Not because it gave me a list of do these things, but because I saw how great Jesus was. I saw his plan. God's plan is starting to unfold in my mind. It's like scales have been removed from my eyes, and I finally see how all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. And I think afterwards, wow, that's the God I serve, that's who I worship. And then it changes my life because I marvel in God. It's not that I know I have a list of commands. No, I'm so amazed at God and how He puts it all together and how it's all intertwined that I leave changed. My life is different because I love Jesus more. My life is different because my mind looks at things differently now. And I see how all of Scripture is tied together. Stephen here beheld God in His glory. And that gave him the power and the boldness. It wasn't a command. It was seeing God in His glory. Now down to verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But he cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The reason they cast him out of the city is because he's considered unclean to this Jewish mindset. So they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the man we know later will be Paul. And as they were stoning him, he cried out. This is how you give up your life for the gospel. This is why. We are different from the radical Islamists who go and kill others. This is the difference. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is the innocent one here. He gets to tie himself to Jesus, just as Jesus was innocent. And they cried out crucify him. And they kill him. And he says, "Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing." Now Stephen, he gets the pleasure to lose his life, and rather than saying, "God's judgment be upon you," what does he say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And immediately fell asleep. That's the power of God. We're very quick to respond to anger when people have wronged us. We're very quick to to lash out against them when they've done something wrong. But here we see a model for us to lay down our lives for others. To give up our life for others. Most of us in here probably will not have to come to a situation where we have to decide between do I give up my life or not give up my life physically. Most of us will never encounter that. Probably won't happen in our lifetime here in America. It may. But for the most part, I, I doubt that's the case. It could be wrong. So how do we tie this back to our 21st century lives in America where we don't have to worry You may be called to physically give up your life on the mission field. But you're also called to lay down your life every day for others. And I'm not just spiritualizing this passage. Jesus says the same, or Paul says the same thing about marriage in Ephesians 5. That just as Jesus laid down His life for His bride, the church, we are called to lay down our lives for our spouses. But I think even more significant than that. Every day. Are you laying down your life for others? Are you making sacrifices for the gospel? Are you being bold in the gospel and laying down your life at the expense of others? Are you sharing the gospel with others? Maybe you're not. And you feel this is an area of need of Repentance surround yourself, captivate yourself, set your mind on the things of the Lord. And when you see Jesus in His splendor, when you're like Isaiah who comes before the Lord and he sees the Lord in His glory, he falls down and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we see our sinfulness, when we see God, we see our need for a Savior. And then it motivates Him. And God says, who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. When you see God in his splendor, it then motivates you to mission, to share the gospel. It also shows you that you fall short of his glory, that you may end up being called to a sermon similar to Isaiah's, who says, You're not going to repent, you're not going to turn, and judgment is coming. It's not that we're called to be arrogant when we share the gospel, but we're called to be faithful. And that will enrage others. But it's worth it. Don't allow your attitude in sharing the gospel to be what turns people away. Allow the gospel to be what turns people away. But in saying that, share God's good word. Share the good news. Even if it costs you your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come hear the story about Stephen and be challenged in our life. Are we giving up our lives? Are we sacrificing our lives for the sake of others? Give us boldness to do these things. Allow us to see you in your glory. And allow that to motivate us to mission. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thinking through just events this week in Paris, and uh, kind of uh, kind of funny how we land on Stephen this morning, uh, dying for his faith. You know, something as Christians that we can look forward to is um, we don't have to focus on death because death was already already paid for by Jesus. Jesus' death is what we focus on. And this morning, as we take the Lord's supper. We take the the cup, we take the bread, Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, it was broken.